You are now listening to the Soul and Wonder Podcast, Episode 36, Meet Anomics with Dave Simon. Welcome to the Soul and Wonder Podcast, where the conduits of the body, depths of the mind, and atlas of the soul are explored with devotion. Through cultural exchange, Christopher and Sarah and their guests will deliver sacred wisdom from around the globe, uncovering the hidden gems of conscious living and holistic healing, all to empower you on your journey of self-discovery. And now, here are your hosts, Christopher and Sarah. Well, 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 we are back again. Welcome to the Soul and Wonder Podcast. We are your lovely hosts, Sarah and Christopher. Are you sick of us yet? You better not be. They wouldn't be here. That's true. (laughs) Guys, this episode, holy cow, David Robinson Simon, you might know him as the author who wrote the book Meatonomics, which looks at the ways meat and dairy producers manipulate consumers to consume much more animal foods than they would otherwise, brings us a wealth of knowledge in this episode. I'm going to be honest. I didn't know half of this. Did you? No, it was very inspirational, very enlightening. Super educational. Very educational. Definitely touched on a lot of things that we haven't really been previously exposed to. You know, when we talk about veganism, we look at the animal welfare. We look at environmental degradation. degradation. We look at our health. But are we really looking at the economics behind it? I never thought to think about it, not once. But Dave really, really brought a lot of things to light. And I think that you will find this information very valuable, whether you are a vegan or not. This is an interesting episode. But before we introduce to you, Dave, guess what, guys? We're a couple weeks into our group enrollment Eat to Thrive that we launched on September 3rd. We only offer that group enrollment a few times a year. So they're doing super well. Proud of our wellness warriors, as usual. And if you're sad you missed the boat, don't worry. We offer private enrollment too. You can always go to www.soulandwonder.com forward slash eat dash two dash thrive. And for those new listeners out there that don't know what Eat to Thrive is, Eat to Thrive is our full plant-based, whole food plant-based transition program. So people that are looking to transition to a plant-based lifestyle, this is the program for you. It comes equipped with so many different things, everything you basically need to make the transition smoothly and bring out the best in yourself. And we're your cheerleaders along the way. Whether you do group enrollment or private, you better bet you're going to have support. So thought we should let you know they're doing well in this group enrollment. Check us in January if you'd like to join the next group enrollment. So David Robinson Simon, who is he? He is a lawyer and advocate for sustainable consumption, and he received his undergraduate degree from the University of California at Berkeley and his law degree from the University of Southern California. In addition to his day job as general counsel for a healthcare company, Dave maintains an active caseload against animal abusers all around the U.S., including lawsuits challenging foie gras producers in New York, 
ritual animal killers in Southern California, and the U.S. Coast Guard's shooting of cormorants. Am I saying that right? Port birds in the Pacific Northwest. He has also brought more than 20 lawsuits successfully challenging restrictive rules for free speech imposed on animal activists at dozens of venues in California. Did you hear that, animal activist? He's the guy you want in your corner. So some of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode, obviously we're going to talk about Dave's journey to veganism and animal advocacy, his whole life path, but we're really going to dive into his book, Meatonomics which explores the unseen economic forces that drive our animal food system and the weird ways these forces affect consumers' eating, spending, health, prosperity, and longevity. So Dave really breaks down the numbers for us so that we can see exactly at what cost animal foods are produced and how that cost is externalized. It's a lot of numbers, but he does a great job at breaking it down, explaining where everything is going and how etc. We are going to talk about how these economic forces are influencing health problems like obesity and heart disease. And we're going to get into that hot topic, local and organic animal products versus factory farmed. Also, the government's role in all this. What are they doing? What are they not doing? What the hell's going on here? And of course, what can we do about all of this? So, strap on your boots, buckle up that seatbelt. This is information-packed. Absolutely. And, of course, stay tuned for the end of the interview for your health tip of the episode. See you later. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have David Simon on the show. Welcome to the show, Dave. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you're all the way in California, aren't you? I am. Nice. What nice. part of California you in? Well, I live at Lake Tahoe, uh, the oh, beautiful largest largest alpine lake in the contiguous United States. So. It's gorgeous up there. I was up there maybe about three, four years ago, hiking through Yosemite and headed up to Tahoe for a bit. It's it's a great area. Uh, yes, I'm quite fond of it. <laughs> That's awesome. I still need to make it out that way. One of these days, it's on the list. Okay, well, let me know. <laughs> sure, sure. So Dave, before we dive into your book, we'd like to know what inspired you to walk the path that you're on? You know, you're so active in your advocacy for sustainable consumption and many other things. I love your, your bio is quite impressive. So what, what inspired you to live this way? Well, it was almost 10 years ago that I almost by accident watched a documentary about the life of Ingrid Newkirk, who is the founder and CEO of PETA people for the ethical treatment of animals. In the course of watching the movie, I admit that I was somewhat uh, um, <laughs> shocked and surprised that that a person would, for example, give up eating meat just because he or she believed in something so strongly. And I couldn't, I, I just couldn't fathom why somebody would do it, would do that. Uh, and after I 
finished watching that documentary, I went to Peter's website and watched some short videos about factory farming and how animals are treated uh, when they're raised for meat, dairy, eggs, other other sources of their body products in this country and other industrialized countries. And uh, it just stunned me. I, I really didn't have any idea that that I was contributing to that system. And and sort of that night, I decided I didn't want to anymore. So that, that led me on this path of uh, adopting a plant-based diet. And and that that diet and lifestyle change has sort of driven a lot of my activity over the last decade. Wow. You know, and it's funny because I think that we can relate in the same way that we never thought about the correlation between, you know, I mean, I just never thought about the way animals were treated to get that steak on my plate, you know, before I became vegan. And it took someone else in our lives to be able to show us that. And then you start asking all those questions and you start doing the research on your own. And the it's just astounding the information you can dig up. Well, and it's also just removing those blinders and, and taking those off for the first time. And you're being exposed to something so great and so powerful and uh, you really, it's hard to go back to your, what we call a quote unquote past life, you know? Yeah, no, very, that's, that's exactly the experience that I had. Yeah. So your book, Meatonomics, awesome book. I think that this is something our listeners really need to buy. Um, what is this book about? So Meatonomics looks at the hidden forces that drive the production of animal foods in this country, and, and it also looks at the consequences of those forces and the effects that that, that animal food production has on consumers uh, in the United States. Mm. This is a topic that, you know, once again, I never thought of before. And so, you know, we actually saw you on What the Health, I believe it was, and the topic itself, I was just like, wow, this is something I really want to dig into and understand more about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what what the health is is uh, certainly a very provocative movie uh, in that it looks at the, at why health providers uh, sort of ignore the role of animal food consumption in U.S. Uh, illnesses. It's uh, definitely a very worthwhile film. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that you mention. Um, with your book is that animal food producers keep retail prices so artificially low. How do they go about this? Yeah, so this is really a key concept. So let me explain this this idea of externalization of costs. If I take my garbage down my driveway and I leave it there for a garbage service to pick up and I pay them to, to take my garbage to the dump, I internalize my garbage collection costs. On the other hand, if I drive to a park and just randomly dump my garbage there and then drive away and leave it there for somebody else to pick up, I externalize my garbage collection costs. That is to say, impose those costs on society. And in Meatonomics, what I show is that animal food producers are externalizing the vast majority of their production costs, which is to say that they are imposing those costs on society. We bear those costs. When they do that, when they make somebody else pay the majority of their cost of production, they are able to lower their retail prices significantly. So one of the things, one of the calculations that I've come up with in this book is that for every $1 of animal foods sold at retail, 
animal food producers externalize another $1.70 of their costs, and they impose those costs on society. And the way you can look at that is to say that, for example, a Big Mac that costs $5 at a McDonald's ends up imposing another $13 of externalized costs on society. So that Big Mac has enormous social costs that are not reflected in the mere retail price of that burger. It's quite powerful. <laughs> and what, yeah. what would you say the like total costs, what are we looking at here, you know, that we're not seeing? We're, we're looking at about $414 billion with a B like boy of costs that the animal food producers just in the United States impose on U.S. consumers and taxpayers every year. To put that number in perspective, it's about half of what we spend in the U.S. each year on Social Security. Wow. It's, it's much, much larger than the, than the budgets of many smaller uh, third world countries. It, it, it's simply an enormous number. That's man. That is. I can't even wrap shocking. my head around four hundred fourteen billion dollars. <laughs> that's almost a half a trillion dollars we're talking about. This is stunning. So, can yeah. you can you explain where these costs come from? Yeah, the by far the largest component of that number, about three quarters of it, uh, is healthcare costs. So, in the United States, related solely to consumption of animal foods, we can attribute about. $314 billion each year to externalize costs that, that producers impose on us. That has to do with things like the cost not only of treating diseases like cancer, diabetes, and heart, de heart disease that are known to be significantly uh, causally associated with consuming animal foods, but also things like costs of lost wages and lost productivity by people who uh, have to be out from work to have, you know, a triple bypass or some other um, treatment related to, to these diseases. Some of the other costs include uh, about $38 billion in government subsidies that we uh, pay each year at the state uh, and federal level in this country to subsidize animal food production, about $37 billion in environmental costs. $21 billion in what I call cruelty costs and about $4 billion in costs related to fishing. Wow. You know, the, it's, it's incredible to hear them broken down like that. Some big numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And so how is the animal food industry any different though than other industries externalizing some costs? Well, that's a great point. It's it's pretty much impossible. We got some dogs going on. <laughs> the mailman <That's, laughs> might be here. That's that's great. I've got cats on my end. Um, <laughs> we have two of those as well. <laughs> gotcha. Every every industry externalizes costs to some extent. There's there's really no way around it. But, but some externalize more costs than others. We know, for example, that the tobacco industry is a huge externalizer of costs. And there is math to suggest that every, every package of cigarettes that costs an average of, say, a little under $5 externalizes something like $10 uh, in costs. But 
um, even even industries like electricity production, which which relies heavily on coal and petroleum and results in lots of pollution and environmental degradation for for extracting uh, resources, even that industry is known to have only about one third the externalized costs of animal food production. Man. So it's it's simply. What we can say about animal food production is compared to any other industry, based on the available data, based on what we know, it it produces more externalized costs in the United States than any other industry. Wow. Wow. That's, you know, I mean, there's so many different ways we can like dive into this that my brain, the gears are just turning. Like once again, this is new information for me. So, you know, a lot of times when we have guests on the show, it's things that we're already very well educated on or are more of the health aspect and that sort of right. thing. Right. So this is just like opening the curtains. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you see it that way because one of the, one of the goals I had in, in writing this book and looking at this topic from this perspective was to provide a different way for people to think about animal food production because conventionally um, many people particularly those who are already vegan know that we have sort of the classic three issues there's the ethical uh, set of issues there are the nutritional issues and there are the environmental issues and this book sort of sought to look at a fourth set of issues and, and and that's the economic issues well, and it's such a vast topic and there's subtopics that branch out from each one of those that you had mentioned. So it's such a big topic to cover. And it's it's nice to see small niches that one that you've created in this uh, topic overall and to be able to dive into just this one issue alone, um, I think, is incredibly important. Well, and even with this, there's like more layers, and yep. which is pretty crazy. Yes, so how are these economic forces influencing health problems like obesity and heart disease, for example? We all know that we have a huge problem with that right now in our country, particularly. So we, we know that animal food producers externalize the majority of their costs, and we know that that allows them to sell their products at artificially low retail prices. The result of those very, very low retail prices of animal foods is that Americans are currently consuming something like twice the amount of animal foods that they would otherwise. And we can, we can sort of determine that based on the figures and based on the prices. And what those very high levels of consumption do is they drive very high levels of disease. So in the United States today, two out of three people is overweight. One in three has some form of heart disease, including high blood pressure. One in nine has diabetes. A significant number have or have had or at some point in their lives will develop cancer. We have some of the world's highest rates of incidence of these diseases. And it's not, it's not just a coincidence. We also have uh, one of the world's highest rates of consumption of animal foods on a per capita basis. And these diseases and problems, health issues that you had mentioned are only getting worse. And the projections out, you know, 10 years from now seem to be daunting, very daunting. So it's, if we continue on the path that we're on. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that, that we need to think about, not just individually, but collectively and from the perspective of policymaking is how do we encourage people in this country to consume 
less of these products that are making us sick and sending us to an early grave. It doesn't seem like a terribly complicated problem. I mean, we've we faced this problem with tobacco. Uh, we haven't solved it completely, but we've certainly managed to turn it around. And we, you know, in the, in 1950, something like one half of adult Americans uh, smoked or consumed tobacco in other ways. And today, that that figure is is down by something like two thirds. Wow. So it's a it's a combination of aggressive taxation, aggressive messaging, uh, medical community bringing attention to bear. We've we're on the path to solving the problem with tobacco, and we just need to to look at look at the issues uh, in in the context of animal production in the same way. I think we I think we need to get people to reduce their consumption dramatically. I agree wholeheartedly on that. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of factors at play. And with the tobacco industry, I think what's really important for us to move forward here and to hopefully, you know, I know there's a lot of lobbyists at play and things like that, but aggressive messaging is definitely huge. And, you know, I know if you go to Canada and you buy a pack of cigarettes, you see like someone's lungs on there that have been, they've been smoking for 20 years or whatever, and then they're black and they're dying or whatever. And I know that, you know, in this country, having some aggressive messaging coming from the meat industry, whether it's with health, whether it's with the planet, whether it's with the animals, I think that could really help to curb our insatiable desire to keep consuming these products over and over again with, again, it's kind of blindly consuming them. Um, Absolutely. At this point. Yeah, we, we, it would be great to have some messaging. Um, it's particularly sponsored by the government um, mm. that encourages people to to consume less of these products. At the moment, what we have is the opposite. We have our government con- encouraging Americans to consume more of these products. And notwithstanding that we know, because the World Health Organization has said that, for example, processed meat is a class one carcinogen. Red meat is a class two carcinogen. So notwithstanding that we know that, that we know clinically that these things are bad for us. Our government continues to to bombard people with messages to get them to buy more of this stuff. It's it's crazy. Absolutely. And I want to dive into the governmental, you know, relationship to this a bit later. I want to backtrack for a second. You know, you were talking about the lower prices increase consumption. So some might argue that there are other factors that influence consumption of animal flesh and secretions. Perhaps they care, you know, about the taste or they just eat it purely out of habit. So what would you say to that? That's completely accurate. We know that there are many reasons why people buy anything that they buy, not just animal foods, but all the other products people buy. There's a there's a complex set of factors at play, and price is typically only one factor. But there are there are ways that we can isolate the effect that price has on consumption. And in the case of animal foods, there are a number of studies that have sought to look at so-called price elasticity of demand just a complicated economics term that looks at when you change price by a certain percentage, how does that affect consumption of the product? And what these studies find is that a 10% move in price, so if you drop prices 10% of beef, uh, for example, um, that's likely to result in about a 6.5% increase in consumption. And that's fairly consistent across the board. It's a little different for... uh, different kinds of animal foods. But in general, if you if you look at animal foods as a category, we can consistently predict that 
if we if we lower prices by 10%, consumption goes up 6.5%. And more importantly, particularly from a policymaking perspective, if we raise prices by 10%, we can expect consumption to go down by about 6.5%. Wow. It makes sense. It does. Now, during your time writing this book, I can imagine you've spent a lot of time researching and doing a lot of uh, you know, just due diligence around this subject. But while you were doing that, did you look at the trends of the tobacco industry and look at how, you know, what brought them, I guess, I wouldn't say down, so to say, but I mean, the the rates of smoking is definitely lowered uh, significantly. Yeah, I, I did look at tobacco uh, in, in, a, in a fairly extensive way, because I think it's the best model for what's going on in animal foods, mm-hmm. particularly because in 1950, there there wasn't even medical consensus yet that tobacco consumption was bad for us. In fact, you if you if you were to turn the go back in the time capsule and open a magazine in 1950, you might even see magazine ads promoting you know cigarettes with slogans like nine out of ten doctors recommend Chesterfields for their mm. uh, patients who smoke stuff like that, and and um, if we look at tobacco, particularly if we look at the way that governments have taxed tobacco over the years, we can see a very, very clear correlation between taxation, which increases the price of tobacco, and um, it, as, as we would predict based on the law of demand, as prices of tobacco have gone up, consumption has gone down commensurately. And as consumption goes down, the incidence of tobacco-related disease has also gone down. That's that's interesting. So about this environmental cost, you know, you said about thirty-seven billion, right, for the externalized right. environmental costs. What exactly are what exactly are those? You know that that system is generating. So there there are lots of environmental costs associated with animal reproduction. Most importantly, there's a significant component of climate change that we know is related to producing animal foods. We have things like uh, devaluation of land, where property is located near factory farms. We have leaky manure lagoons that either catastrophically uh, or very slowly are leaking their waste into our groundwater and into our rivers, lakes, and streams. We have air pollution. We have degradation of farmland and erosion. And and these many problems uh, have been documented through a variety of studies with actual numbers. And based on those numbers, and based on the prevalence of animal food production in this country, we can we can say that that's responsible for about thirty seven billion dollars each year in damage to our environment. Wow. You know, what would you say to someone who might argue that? Well, you know, even if we all became vegan, there would be you know, environmental degradation and issues along those lines, what would you say to them? I would say that's true because all forms of industrial agriculture are bad for the environment. We, mm-hmm. we know that. That's, that's sort of unequivocal. But I would say that, that a plant-based diet is, is measurably much less bad for the environment than animal food production because, among other things, producing animal foods takes – depending on the estimate, between 40 and 100 times more water uh, than than producing food, equivalent amount of protein for people on a plant-based diet. Um, it, cons- it consumes more fossil fuels. 
uh, it generates more carbon output, et cetera. So yes, every, every everything we do on the land in form in terms of agriculture is ultimately bad for it. But but we can we can have a much much smaller environmental footprint uh, on a plant based diet. Do you have the exact number of uh, I, I forget? It's over a thousand gallons of water per pound of beef. Do you know the exact number of that? I, I don't. I don't. It's in the book. I don't remember it offhand. It, and it often gets. It, it. I think it often gets misrepresented because people have done the math using liters and gallons and ounces and pounds and kilos. So mm. uh, it, it it is an enormous uh, amount of water. The one. The one. Gra- the one sort of graphic uh, metaphor that, that I recall is that the amount of water necessary to produce one steer uh, is about equal to the amount of water necessary to float a battleship. Wow. That's perfect. That's what so, I was looking for. I want to put that in perspective <laughs> for the listeners so they really get an idea of what we're talking about here. That's a lot of water. Yeah, That's a ton of water. You know, and I know people are starting to think, well, okay, well, what about, you know, buying only local or organic animal foods? Will that reduce our environmental impact? Well, unfortunately, the research just doesn't show that it does significantly. In fact, in, in a number of cases, it, the inorganic form of animal food production is actually better for the environment than the organic form. Mm-hmm. That's because, among other things, it takes longer to raise animals organically than it does inorganically. And when you add time, you add uh, additional stress to the environment, you add additional need for fossil fuel, you add additional carbon output. Um, it also takes more land to raise animals organically than inorganically. And while, while from an ethical perspective, it's certainly better for animals uh, to have access to more land, uh, we, we certainly cannot say that from an environmental perspective, it's better for the environment because, because almost invariably what happens when you pack animals densely onto land is that there, is, there are erosion problems. The land is, uh, is generally... Uh, uh, compacted in ways that make farming more and more challenging. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it also impacts the neighboring species. You know, I know there's a problem with like poaching of coyotes and skunks and all kinds of other animals that we deem as pests or predators um, to keep their farmed animals safe. So it's really a disruption of the local ecosystem that's happening. Mm-hmm. And we don't generally talk about a lot of that either. And I think that's really important to mention. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you did mention an interesting number earlier, um, the $21 billion cost you mentioned associated with cruelty. What does that mean? So um, a few years ago, a couple of agricultural economists did a study in which they asked participants to join uh, an actual live auction and to bid with their own money on moving animals from inhumane environments to humane environments. So for example, people could actually pull out their wallets and spend real dollars uh, to move chickens from battery cages to cage-free environments. They could move sows from gestation crates to 
uh, create free environments. And the reason this study is so important is that there are, there are uh, by contrast, there are lots of surveys and other sort of questionnaire type studies that have been done that ask people the question, what would you be willing to pay to do X, you know, to move chickens from battery cages to cage-free environments? But until you actually get people to open their wallets and pull out their own money, you don't really know what they're going to do. And this, this study did just that. So taking that, the data from that study and extrapolating it to look at other forms of inhumane practices in factory farms, uh, I did that math that comes up to about $21 billion that Americans would likely pay to stop the cruelest practices in factory farms. You know, it's pretty reflective, I think, of our consciousness moving in the right direction, at least, you know, there's progress happening here. But it's like you'd mentioned the other forms of farming in, you know, the organic and local isn't necessarily better for the environment. And so it's like the, people are starting to wake up to the fact that these animals are treated so inhumanely. Um and they want to see something happen from it. I mean, obviously, to the point that you calculated $21 billion costs for us to do so. So at least that's a good a good sign. Or everybody can just go vegan. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That, that would certainly be the best idea. <laughs> but that's too extreme. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, a lot of a lot of these problems, they really do sound like they should be illegal or at least better re regulated. And we we touched a bit on the government earlier, you know, how they're actually kind of promoting the consumption of animal products. So what exactly is the government's role in all of this? What are they doing or not doing? Well, our government has a very complicated relationship to animal food production. The, the USDA, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, for example, has, has two conflicting roles because on the one hand, it is charged with promoting and growing this industry, uh, which means quite literally uh, it has a hand in advertising. It has a hand in protecting the U U.S. markets overseas. It has lots of other functions that it performs domestically to make sure that this market stays healthy and grows. And yet, on the other hand, in a completely contrary role, it, it has responsibility for helping to develop dietary guidelines for what Americans should eat. Mm -hmm. And it finds itself in the uncomfortable position of, on the one hand, having to say people should, should buy more animal foods and yet, on the, other hand, on the other hand, having to acknowledge the science that says, but if you eat more animal foods, you'll probably make yourself sick. So maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Gotta love those uh, food pyramids they put out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so many commentators have said, look, uh, it's fine to have a government agency that helps promote industry, but you shouldn't have the same agency also make recommendations to consumers that should be handled by somebody else. And so there are people who just say USDA should not be involved in, in developing dietary guidelines. And I, I agree with that. I think we should just leave that to another agency. Absolutely. Sure, sure. It's, it's such a tricky thing, though. It really is. It is. It is. The animal food industry is enormously powerful in this country. It's a massive industry worth $250 billion each year. And because of because it creates a lot of jobs, because it spends a lot of money on lobbying, because it 
donates a lot of money to lawmakers, it has enormous influence uh, at the state and federal level in how laws get made and in how regulations get enacted. And it has been very successful at protecting itself uh, and insulating itself from laws and regulations that might tend to diminish its productivity. Well, and not to mention that, and this has been highlighted in some of the documentaries, that uh, there's laws in place that you can actually be deemed a, quote unquote, a terrorist for disrupting this industry in a major way. So if you were to attempt to disrupt this industry, that you can go to jail for a very long time and be called a terrorist for doing so. Oh, that's that's a great example. Yeah. Something like two out of three states in this country today have adopted so-called eco-terrorism laws. And these laws say that if 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 somebody in the course of perpetrating what is otherwise a relatively innocuous crime, say vandalism, malicious mischief or something along those lines, targets a so-called animal enterprise that is almost anything having to do with animals, a restaurant, a factory farm, a testing facility, whatever, that as a result of targeting that animal enterprise, that relatively innocuous crime is enhanced and the penalty goes from a relatively innocuous penalty to something much more material. And that person then becomes labeled a terrorist, which is, (laughs) depending on how you look at it, pretty crazy. In this country, you can bomb an abortion clinic and kill people and not be labeled a terrorist. But if you if you liberate 10 minks from a mink farm, for example, uh, you will be labeled a terrorist. So go figure. Well, we better change our weekend plans. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. So, you know, what exactly can we do about all of this? Well, there are a few things that people can do. First of all, on an individual level, uh, we can simply make a decision to to either boycott this industry completely uh, and not support it at all, or to simply consume less animal products than we have been. And there is a significant body of research showing that certainly uh, being on a vegan diet is more healthy than than an omnivorous diet. Uh, vegans, uh, the, the research shows vegans can live about 15% longer. We have something like 15% lower um, body mass index or weight uh, and lots of other health benefits. But even just doing like a meatless Monday is shown to have significant um, health benefits. So if you just cut out meat one day per week, it's a great start, not just for your health, but for the environment, for the animals, et cetera. Well, and I would like to add as, oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, go ahead. Cause I, cause I'll talk about the second, the second approach uh, in more detail, but, but why don't you make uh, yeah. I just wanted to expand on your point when you're talking about veganism, and this is something that we've we've ran into with a lot of our clients and stuff that people are trying to find this balance, right? So there's different types of vegans, and there, you can certainly become a junk food vegan where you eat nothing but Oreos all day because, yes, they are vegan. But we want to mention that the importance of consuming more of a whole food plant-based diet would be ideal to keep your risk for heart disease and diabetes at a much lower rate by, you know, consuming more of these, what we said, whole foods, natural foods. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. 
You know, and I think also before you move on to your second point, Dave, is like you'd said, even that meatless Monday is making somewhat of an impact. And it's like to here we can show people that every step in the right direction is a step that counts, no matter how small it may seem. And whether that's starting off with meatless Mondays for a month or a year, however long that suits you, but then progressing, moving forward, maybe removing cheese from, I don't know, cheeseless Tuesdays or something, and then just slowly building upon that until you feel comfortable enough to, you know, make a full switch someday, if that's where you aspire to be. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, one of the things that I think people fear about trying veganism or a plant-based diet is that because we're so acculturated and habituated to eating meat and cheese with every meal, because that's what we've done throughout our lives. I did it myself until my early 40s. It's just impossible to contemplate how we would eat a meal without those things in it. And until you've actually done that a few times and seen how easy it can be, it can be it can be a daunting task. Absolutely. So that's that's why something as simple as trying to cut a you know just a particular category of food out of your diet one or two days a week can can be a great start because then you can see oh it's not so hard. Um, and in fact, if you don't eat um, dairy based cheese, there are lots of other great healthy cheeses out there that are just made out of cashews or other nut products. Uh, super healthy tastes great uh, but they don't they don't contribute to heart disease they don't they don't cause animals to be hyper confined for their entire lives uh, and they're just a great alternative yeah very good point and they are very very delicious shout out to miyoko's <laughs> oh yeah yes mine mine too so what was that second point you were going to bring up about what we can do about all of these problems Well, the second thing um, is that as we have seen with tobacco, and as I mentioned, as we were discussing tobacco, when you tax a good, when you impose a government-sponsored tax on it, you increase the retail price of that good, and that decreases its consumption. And in the case of tobacco, taxes have been enormously successful at reducing consumption And I think that we need to, and likely we will at some point in this country, tax animal foods. We tax tax other socially undesirable goods because we want to reduce their consumption. That's why we tax tobacco. We tax alcohol. We tax gasoline. We want people to consume less of these things, not more. And for the same reason, we need to start taxing animal foods. The research that I've done shows that if we were, for example, to impose a 50% tax on all foods that contain any animal products, we would see something like a 44% reduction in consumption. And that would have just tremendous benefits for us socially. I wonder how angry people would be if we did this. Well, um, look, people were angry when we taxed tobacco. Tobacco farmers were not happy about it. Um, we used to subsidize tobacco farming in this country, we, and we only stopped that uh, about 20 years ago. But you know, we need to stop subsidizing animal foods too, and I'm sure that producers will not be happy about that. But it needs to be done. Couldn't agree more. Definitely. Well, I do think uh, on a light, lighter note and more positive note that we are moving in the right direction. Um, 
for our health and for, uh, you know, more people that seem to be consuming more of a plant friendly diet. And I think this grassroots movement is really taking off. And I, I really am excited to see what the future has in store for us. I agree. We, we're already seeing consumption re- declining on a year over year basis. And many commentators think that is directly related to the success of the vegan movement. I think we're increasingly seeing the medical community take notice that plant-based foods are healthier for us than animal-based foods. And I think that eventually, when it becomes a standard of care in this country to recommend a plant-based diet to people, particularly those who have diseases known to be caused by animal food consumption, like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, when that becomes a standard of care, we will see policy policymakers follow through and start to enact laws and regulations that target animal food consumption and that attempt to reduce consumption in this country. Absolutely. It's so exciting. <laughs> yes. We're, we're definitely on a path that's, that's, that has great cause for optimism. So, Dave, what are you up to these days? If people want to follow you and see what you've got in store, what's going on in your life? Well, um, I, I don't have any new books planned, although I probably will do something in the future. But uh, as I'm a lawyer uh, and interested in, in protecting animals, I continue to have a caseload um, targeting animal abusers uh, and targeting venues that try to suppress uh, ex- expressive activity that, that animal advocates are trying to engage in. So I'm suing a bunch of um, shopping malls in Southern California. I'm suing uh, foie gras producers in New York. Um, and I've got some other lawsuits uh, on the horizon where I'm trying to, to make life a little better. That's awesome. You're doing the dirty work that I think a lot of people would be too intimidated to bring on themselves. Well, you know, it's uh, I've been practicing law for almost 30 years. And for me, this is this is the stuff that is the most rewarding um, and that brings me the most satisfaction. So I'm, I'm actually relieved that I that I got into it and, and that I now have a, a way to, to do it. That's really cool. Fantastic work. Yeah, we admire what you're doing <clears throat> and keep it up. We're going to be following you and I'm encouraging our listeners to check out your book, Meetonomics, and to follow you as well. Super. Thank you so much, Dave, for coming on to the show. We really enjoyed talking. Well, thanks a lot for having me, and thanks for your interest in the subject. Absolutely. Well, if that doesn't get the gears turning in your head, I don't know what will. Thank you. Thank you, Dave Simon, for all those wonderful facts. Much love from Soul and Wonder. So, guys, since we're on the vegan subject matter, I'd like to introduce to you the health tip of the episode. How to make your vegan diet even healthier. And this is something that a lot of people get a little bit upset about, but this is something that you should consider. Cooking without oil. Yes, that's right. No olive oils, no vegetable oils, not even coconut oil. Guys, you don't need it. It's great for your skin. It's great for your hair, but you don't need to eat it. And there are plenty of peer-reviewed studies to prove so. Now, a few facts that you might want to know about oils. Vegetable oils, this has everything to do with olive and coconut, have more than twice the calorie density of refined sugar. Vegetable oils contain almost no vitamins, minerals, or fiber. 
And olive oil is, in fact, harmful to your arteries. And we'll include in our show notes two videos, one from Dr. Clapper and one from Dr. Esselstyn, explaining their take on olive oil so that you can further do your research. And guess what? The Mediterranean diet was only healthy because it was mainly plant-based, not because of the copious amounts of olive oil that they ingested. Whole plant foods contain all of the essential fats that our bodies require, so no need to worry. Now, my favorite method for cooking without oils is using veggie broth or splashes of water in a nice, toxic-free, non-stick pan. It cooks your vegetables the same. Any recipe, you can just take out that oil, sometimes just add veggie broth in place. Sometimes you don't need any of it at all. Of course, you want to test the waters and see what works for you. But we've found throughout our whole food plant-based journey that not only are we, our energy levels are higher without oils, we don't break out anymore like I used to. I can tell a significant difference when we go out to eat because of course they're going to have oil in that food. Sometimes I'll break out in pimples almost immediately. Not only that, but feel really sluggish, feel bloated. You really notice the difference once you switch and you get off of oils. Um, Of course, you know, going out to eat, it's tough to avoid. And it's something that, you know, we, we cook a lot. So being at home, we can avoid it as much as we can. But, you know, of course, there's those times where we do go out to eat and we want to be around friends and family. Absolutely. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about these studies that claim that oils are not, in fact, good for you, we'll also include the link for you to click on really helpful websites that we've done our own research from. So that is that. Oils stay on your skin, not in your body. Eat your avocados, eat your nuts, eat your seeds, whatever it is. Yes, and be sure to join our free Facebook group called Transitioning to a Whole Food Plant-Based Lifestyle. This is for those people that are curious, interested in transitioning, or for those that have already made the transition and just want to share a little bit of wisdom and knowledge with others. Absolutely. We'd love to have you. Just go to our Facebook at Soul and Wonder Inc. and you'll find our group linked to our business Facebook page. Send a request to join and we'll accept that ASAP. Yes. Awesome. I think this concludes this episode and we will see you around soon. Catch you later.